1: All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Oranga.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, August 28th. I'm your host, Terry Aranga. We are excited that next week, Dr. Mary Joanne Lang and Edward Miguel will be here talking about troubleshooting the looming crisis in care for soon-to-be adults on the spectrum and how to provide wonderful care for both youngsters now and adults later. Dr. Lang had a last-minute scheduling issue, and we were delighted that my guests today, Michelle Ortega and Haman Hakimi of the Law Offices of Michelle Ortega in Long Beach, California could be with us. We had a great show on August 14th talking with legal advocate Haman Hakimi about individualized education programs and the rights of special education students. And we're going to continue today with independent educational evaluations and many other important topics. Please stay with us until the end of the program because I have a special announcement concerning an esteemed and longtime doctor in the autism community, Dr. Anju Usman. Welcome, Michelle and Heyman.
3: Hi, Terry. How are you?
2: Well, I'm blessed today. How are you?
3: Great. Thanks for having us.
2: Oh, you're quite welcome. Let's just briefly recap for new listeners the help that you both provide for families and the importance of goals and objectives in the IEP process.
3: Well, essentially our office and our service model is dedicated to representing parents and children with the IEP process. So what we try to do essentially is to advocate for these children and these students in order to ensure that they are being appropriately educated, they have the appropriate resources in the form of designated instructional services such as speech and language, occupational therapy, uh, whether they need aid support. What we try to do is we try to navigate the process for parents and try to educate them with the process so that they are able to be finely tuned when they are entering IEP meetings and they are discussing issues with the school district, with their respective school district, so that their children are able to make the progress and the development that, as parents, all of us would are, are looking for for our student and our child to make.
2: And with budgets being so tight right now, not only for businesses and school districts and families, when parents are having to make that decision between you know, whether they're going to get an automatic dishwasher or whether they can afford legal advocacy services for their children, why is it more important than ever right now? And I think we touched upon this in the last interview on August 14th, which is archived for listeners. Why is it so important right now, more important than ever, to look to an advocate uh, in, this, in the IEP process?
3: Well Terry, that's a great question and, and that's where a lot of parents when I when we consult with them and have discussions are very on the edge about. They are worried about when is it the right time to bring someone in to advocate for my family. Am I doing some if I do this, if I do take this step, is this something that's going to affect my child during the school day when I'm not there? Um, and I always tell all of our clients directly that, you know, this is not something that needs to be adversarial or threatening to the school district. This is just you as a parent fighting for your child's education and going in and standing in a, in a meeting with the district, wherever your respective school district is, and identifying to them that these are your specific concerns and these are the things that you would like to see formatted for your child's education. Now, the manner in which it's done, that's the most important piece of your question because if it's done the appropriate way and correctly and done in a civil manner, there's no reason why a parent, which would be a respective client of this office or whoever the representation is, to feel that walking out of IEP meeting, there's going to be some sort of backtrack effect on their child or their child's education just for the simple fact that they've brought someone in to advocate for their child's needs. That should be something that should be innate, and that's part of the process. And the reason that's part of the process is because This area of law and the California Education Code is very vague. It is not detailed to identify exactly what the terms and the identifications are within the IEP. So, again, you're a parent, you're sitting in IEP, you go through your goals, objectives, you go through the process, and where whatever state you're in, the district is going to give you an offer of placement, of services, of supports, and they call that an offer of FAPE and appropriate public education. However, as a parent, no one can sit there and say, okay, this is a FAPE and this is not a FAPE, because unfortunately, not even us as advocates for these children can pinpoint what does a FAPE look like exactly. And the reason being, of course, is because every child is different, their needs are different, um, they have unique needs in certain areas, they have strengths in certain areas, they have weaknesses in certain areas, and they respond differently to intervention. So, because of that, when we're formulating and advocating for these students, we need to be looking at what is the effect, uh, what's the, what is the best effect and what is the best approach, and need to make a team decision. And obviously, when, I, when we have clients here or we have a parent, you have to understand as a parent, they're the most informed resource, they are the guideline, the map for the child. So, in order to get strong advocacy and understand that your position is met, then as a parent, we're always looking to them as a resource. And unfortunately, at times, parents feel their opinions and their decipher, when they decipher things at different meetings, is not identified to them, and they're not given that voice. So our job is to come in and provide that voice and ensure that these parents and these children's needs are met during this meeting.
2: And I remember from our last show, Heyman, on August 14th, that I appreciated how you respect parents as the experts on their own children and I want to emphasize to listeners how this isn't just a ploy on the part of advocates to try to drum up business but I've had experiences in a couple of different states and I've got to tell you there is a world of difference between having an experienced educated advocate go in with you from the beginning from sitting down at that very first meeting with the district that very first IEP meeting there was just a world of difference and um, so the experience was much more uh, favorable, productive, positive, successful going in with advocacy from the very beginning. And then you can be civil. All you are asking for is what your child is intended to. And the advocate, um Heyman Hakimi, Michelle Ortega, will um, is there to educate you about what your child is entitled to, and that is all you're asking the school district or whomever for you're not being unreasonable, um, and you're learning what is what your child is entitled to on the state and federal levels. And then, Heyman you had said that after this initial process, then you empower parents to go forward independently for their children.
3: Well... You know, again, and that's, that's a good point that you make here because whether we're in California, whether we're in New York, it doesn't matter the state you're in. Obviously, the laws are different, and the remedies would be different as well. However, when we're looking at the stance of an advocate and the use of an advocate within the meeting, there's been IEP meetings where we've attended one sole meeting, and the parent has come to us and said, you know, I'm not really sure if these goals or these objectives are appropriate. I'm not really sure if this placement is appropriate, or they have concerns about the service model or if they don't have a health plan in place, or if they might feel it's not being followed appropriately. So there's been a ton of instances where we've gone in and kind of tweaked the IEP, went in, changed the language of the goals, changed the service model, and made suggestions to the IEP team, which, they respectively have actually included and added to the IEP document. So when that's done, then you have a parent walking out of that meeting that's now enthusiastic, that's now happy, that now can look at their child's needs being met and look at an IEP document that makes sense to them. And that's the most important part of this whole process is, and unfortunately, there's obviously opposite of the spectrum where parents are sitting in these meetings, again, regardless of what state you're in, four, five hours of questions and inquiries and six and seven different individuals sitting across the table that are identifying to you. They know your child's needs. They know exactly what that, your child needs on a daily basis, and you walk out of that meeting with your brain muffled and not, and not even sure what just occurred in the last four hours. And you're looking at your IEP document and you're reading it over at night, maybe the next day. And there's still significant concerns and questions about what is on the IEP notes page, what services are being provided. So, again, there is to have a strong, and again, and I, I appreciate the fact that a strong and experienced advocate is identified um, by you in this question, because there are, that's fundamental for this process. Because if you do not understand how a goal should be written, how an objective should be presented if it's a quarterly objective, how a DIS service model, designated instruction service model, is different between an individual model and a group model. More specifically, when we're getting down to health needs, children that have health plans, that have behavior support plans if they're aggressive or have maladaptive behaviors, if you cannot understand the functions of these documents, and you're sitting in an IEP meeting not having this experience, then you're in a world of trouble as far as the parent goes, and the child's education is going to be significantly affected because of it. Okay.
2: So... Absolutely right. If you're the parent sitting in the meeting for four hours and you feel all muffled, imagine how your child's school year is going to feel to your child. And we will pick up with talking about this when we come back to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Michelle Ortega and Heyman Hakimi of the law offices of Michelle Ortega in Long Beach, California. Thank you to our sponsors, Oxy Health and Superberries. We'll be right back.
4: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history?
5: whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com.
4: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry.
2: We are back with Michelle Ortega and Heyman Hakimi of the Law Offices of Michelle Ortega in Long Beach, California. And we are talking about legal advocacy for your child in the independent educational, um, excuse me, individualized education program process. And, you know, Heyman, I'd like to comment on a point you made about parents feeling um, intimidated if they bring with uh, an advocate to the meetings, et cetera. And, you know, I was talking about how there was a world of difference in um, my experiences uh, in a couple of different states between using or not using an advocate, and it occurred to me during the break came in that my experience in the state where there were was no where everything went really, really well, there were no adversarial circumstances when I came in with an advocate from the very beginning the process went very happily. It wasn't adversarial. What do you think about that?
3: Well, I think that ex- that's exactly the way it should be, and that's the way that a, an appropriate service model by an advocate or an attorney or whoever your representation is should be geared towards. I always, we always tell all of our clients, there, you can get more bees with honey. Obviously, there is a time that you need to be assertive and, uh, and aggressive if you feel that your needs are, your child's needs are not being met and you're, you have concerns about your child's education. However, that should not be done in the form of an IEP meeting by getting upset or making the, the IEP team members uncomfortable because all that's going to do is that's just, that's just creating noise in the room. What you need to do as a parent is if you do have specific concerns, There are multiple tools in that IEP document that you can use in order to express your concerns. The first one being your IEP notes page, which we touched on a little bit last time. However, that IEP notes page, if you have a concern and you feel your child's placement is not appropriate or you feel the behavior plan does not address the appropriate interventions or you feel the health plan does not meet your child's health needs, that needs to be put in the notes page and written and identified in detail so that whenever there is an issue and you might have to take the next step, there is no identification as a parent that you never expressed your concern. And that's the biggest issue here and we run into that all the time before we get involved is the school district presents to parents, I didn't know that was your concern. You never expressed that. So. This process needs to be amicable. You need to continue to have a relationship with your respective school district after an advocate or or attorney is involved. However, the way that that's done is you take a firm stance, respectfully identify, these are my requests, these are the things I have concerns with, and allow the district to respond to you. Now, in most instances, when they respond to you in a manner which you're not happy and they do not provide you the services obviously that's why you have your advocate or representation there in order to be able to counsel you to what the appropriate next steps would be
2: okay so you've identified Heyman, that it's so important right up front to clearly and appropriately state goals and objectives uh and um then you that has a goal also of them being efficiently and effectively met so michelle how can I, as a mom, understand if my child's IEP is meeting his needs each year, each quarter and each reporting period after the fact?
6: Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to make sure that um, the all of the child's areas of needs are identified, and the way that you can easily do that is by looking back to the assessments whether they're conducted by the district or you have independence. But um, the assessments are key because the assessments are going to identify all the areas of needs or area of deficits that a child might have. And based on that, on all of those areas of needs, that's where the goals and objectives come into place because obviously the goal is to try to get the child to be as close to the same age, typical peers as possible and as close to the California content centers or whatever state content that, um, standards that that child resides in. So first you want to look to the assessments and areas of deficit. For each area of deficit, or for every area the child is below what he should be functioning at for his age level, you want to develop a goal, and this can be in speech, it can be in occupational therapy, fine motor, gross motor, it can be in adaptive physical education, it can be in, um, in academics, it can be in behavior, social, emotional, and in any of those areas you want to be able to, for, that's why assessing in all those areas, number one, is important. Number two you get the goals and objectives based upon the deficit areas from the standardized assessments that are conducted. Now, once you have the goals and objectives laid out, you want to make sure that they're very measurable. So in other words, you want to be able to come back in a year from now, which is the annual date, and you want to be able to ensure that the child has made progress or be able to measure the progress that they haven't met the goal. So it's very important to make sure that your goals and objectives have are measurable in that they have percentages in trials. So just to say that, um, you know, students will improve their writing is not a very good goal and you would want to make sure that you change that goal to say, okay, what is the baseline, meaning what can the child do now? Let's say a child is able to write um, an introductory paragraph in junior high and they need to write a, th- a three-paragraph essay with the body and the conclusion, then that might be the goal. You want to write Say you know over three consecutive times, the student will write um, three paragraph story or, or um, essay and be able to identify the introduction, the thesis, the body, and the conclusion. So when you're that way, when you come back to the end of the year, you're able to say that the child either made the progress that was reported or didn't. Usually, mastery is 80%. If the district will sometimes will say you know the child will meet this with 65% accuracy. You want to try to push them to make that as close to 80 or 90% as possible so that it will be mastery. Another one of the things that districts like to do a lot is they'll say, well, 80% mastery, but only three out of five trials. Well, that's not really 80% mastery. 80% mastery would be that five out of five trials. So sometimes you really need to make sure that not only percentage, but the trials are, are accurate. Um, there are objectives uh, that they are mandated by the IDEA, so you have to have objectives with your goals. So those can would be... Three, every three but I guess it would be a and this situation would be like a trimester so there's three reporting periods and the, that basically just breaks the goals out so for example the goal is that a child will be able to write their name by the end of the year then you want to maybe start with saying that the child will be able to write um, write the name by a certain by three months from now six months from now they'll be able to write it within the lines and by the annual goal they'll be able to write it with a capital to, in the first for the first letter within the lines and on the on in with adequate spacing. And and that those three things will be what's comprised of the annual goal. So when you come back a year from now you can actually find out whether or not the child's met the goal. And a lot of times parents say, Well oh the district says my child can do this, but I'm not seeing this at home. And again we do have to consider the fact that sometimes these taught lessons are not being generalized in other settings, which is important. So generalization across settings is something usually I like to include in the goals as well. That way we can say, okay, well, not only is he doing it in a school setting, but he's doing it at home, he's doing it in the community, he's doing it in other functions, so that way that you know that the, the skill is being generalized.
2: How do you get it generalized at home? Are there some sort of in-home support services that are available in various states? And can that be written into the IEP? Well, educationally wise, I mean, everything that the district offers has
6: to be educationally related. So if it's necessary for the child, if the child's not generalizing and can't do his homework at home because he's not generalizing the skill, then yes, th- that would be grounds to request in-home supportive services from the district. Usually, however, the um, in-home supportive services or the community services will come or be funded through other agencies such as Regional Center.
2: All right. Now, Michelle, you were talking about, you know, writing the child's name and then doing it within the line in another three months and proper spacing within another three months. How do parents differentiate um, between when or if a goal is, Appropriate in the timing that is proposed, or if the goal is being dumbed down. Do parents ever feel that happens? I'll give you an example. Maybe the child can write the letter A, but for their age group, they should be writing A through Z. And right. um, then, is it ever does it ever happen where a school district in you know Podunk, uh, Kalamazoo says? we're going to teach A and B within the next three months, but what the child really should have in the next three months, what they're capable of with proper support is A through M. How do you know? Is this why you get independent educational evaluations or what? Exactly. It's really difficult for um, a parent, and even though a parent
6: they usually they're the best advocate for their child and the best expert on their child, it's really hard for a parent to be able to say to the district, look, you know, this goal of being able to count to 10 by the end of, and within one school year is not appropriate for my child. The district might use arguments, um, and might refer to testing such as the IQ testing or functioning level of the child and, and it might use that to argue with the parents that, you know, well this is what we think the child can be expected to learn within this year. Now, problem with that is that a lot of times the goals are dumbed down, so to speak, and there, there's not adequate progress being made. However, If a child counts to one this year and can count to two next year, arguably that's making progress. Now, is it meaningful? Absolutely not. So, yes, that is when um, the first thing you can look to is the California content standards. If you have a more high-functioning child, you always want to try to aim your goals towards what they should be doing for that um, particular school year. Those can be found online. If not, the district should be able to supply those to you. Um, but when you have a child that is more cognitively delayed, or might have some other executive functioning issues going on, that could be a very, uh, a very uh, sticky point where the district is saying, you know, well, this is what we feel based on the scores. The child can meet or achieve within a year, and the parent saying otherwise. That is when the independent assessments do come in handy, <laughs> and they're they're very helpful because independent evaluators say, well, look, we assess this child as well. And we feel that within a year's time he should be able to do this. And, you know, it's always better to set the goals higher than to set them lower. Now, of course, the district's going to argue, well, if we set them too high and he doesn't meet any of the goals, and the parents can say that he's not making adequate progress. However, at the same time, you don't want the, the goals to be dumbed down. You really want to try to push a child, try to get the maximum amount of accomplishment out of the child that you can. And plus, it does help with their self-esteem, their social, emotional, and in a lot of other areas as well.
2: So there was a situation where a mom said to the school district, you know, my child's identifying 30 verbs on picture cards at home, and the school district in that state simply said, well, we're not seeing that here. And that was the end of that. And so they should be wanting to generalize to the school. They should be eager and happy for the child to generalize to the school setting what the parents are able to um, see with the child at home.
6: Exactly. That happens all the time where, um, you know, a client will say to me during a meeting, look, my, my child can already do that, whatever, you know, and we say, look, this child's already doing this at home. Well, he's not doing it at school. It's not generalizing. That, to me, shows that either, one, that the district is not utilizing the type of methodologies that the, either the parent or in-home support agency who's working with the child in the home is, is, is um, being able to provide for the child. So maybe it's not necessarily that he's not generalizing it, but perhaps it's the lack of training and or the use of certain methodologies at school that they're, that they're using in the home that's lacking in the, in the school placement, which is why the child's not generalizing it. So that, whenever that comes up, that's kind of an argument I bring up. Well, you know, then maybe the district staff can come to the home environment and observe and see how we are being able to elicit these things from this child in the home environment. Okay. Or maybe the district needs to hire a non-public agency to come in and and shadow this child and show or train the district on how to use the methodology that they're using in the home environment to get the child to bring to do the things that they're doing in the home that they're not doing in school.
2: And is that a reasonable request of the parent in the IEP process? Absolutely. A lot of times, the school districts. Sometimes the staff is eager to
6: come into the home environment and see what's happening in the home environment so that they can help to generalize that in the home setting. A lot of the time, the teachers, the aides, the ABA uh, specialists, they really do want to try to help, and it's just really where the issues come in is the lack of resources to be able to do that. So yes, that's a reasonable request to ask that they come and observe a home session if the child's receiving in-home therapy or if the parent has methodologies or ideas or, or tricks that are working in a home that maybe the district hasn't tried, the, the parent can ask to come in and, and, and work with the, with the staff one day. I mean, that, there's different ways to go about that. But ultimately, in the end, if they're not able to get the things out of the child that a t- that the in-home program or parent is worth getting or that a private school might be able to provide, then maybe the environment is just not appropriate.
2: Okay, very good. We're going to pick up exactly with these kinds of points when we come back here to the Voice America Health and Wellness channel with Michelle Ortega and Haman Hakimi of the Law Offices of Michelle Ortega in Long Beach, California. Thank you to our sponsors, Oxy Health and Superberries. We'll be right back.
4: Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Every weekend, take some time out of your schedule for new
0: reflections featuring Dr. Adam Rubenstein. It's a show about all things aesthetic, from skin care to plastic surgery, health and beauty. You'll learn about the aesthetic products and procedures to embrace or avoid. Each show will feature live, virtual, interactive consultations that you'll be able to follow along with and featured guests from the world of beauty and aesthetics. Listen Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, for new reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
4: Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry.
2: We are back with Haman Hakimi and Michelle Ortega of the Law Offices of Michelle Ortega. And we were talking about some interesting points before the break, and I wanted to give an example of the child, you know, doing something at home and then the school saying, well, we're not seeing it here. So maybe the child did express the Gettysburg Address using the rapid prompting method, for example, but then the school says, well, we're not seeing communication here. Um, and, by the way, we don't know if there are evidence-based peer-reviewed studies on that. You know, what say you to this? Well, that that does commonly happen, uh, especially
6: with speech, where speech holes are made and the parents saying, well, they're already saying no syllables, or saying no sounds, and the district's saying, well, we're not hearing that here. Um, I've had clients go as far as to videotape the child in the home setting, to take to the school and say, look, this is what my child's able to do in the home setting. And again, if a child's able to, to do something in one setting, that proves that they have the potential to be able to do it. So the argument of, you know, low cognition or cognitive impairment no longer can be used by the district at that point. Um, again, if there's not a lot of, We've had a case recently where this was exactly the situation where the goals that they, that they were making were all being met in the home setting. In the home setting, they had a very skilled non-public agency coming in to apply a, um, behavioral methodology to help break down the material to get the student to be able to access the curriculum. At school, the training was just... You know, I mean for lack of a better word, the training was just not there. Although they tried and they were trying to help with student, the actual skill level of the age and the people working directly with the student was just not the same as it was in the home program. So in that case, um, after having to file for due process, that student is now in a non-public school and receiving non-public agency ABA services and is flourishing. I mean, he's doing very, very well. So sometimes it really, I, and it's just hard to be able to prove that. But I, like I said, I have had parents go as far as to record the student, video or audio record them doing the things the district says they aren't able to do. So parents, if they're able to do it in one setting and not another, then it's not the child per se that's having the issue. It's per it's, it's the quality of the training,
2: right? Of the and then if, the it. Ch- if the child is given that additional support, at school, then they can go forward and learn even more things through the school setting. So parents, don't think of yourself as a squeaky wheel. Just think of yourself as a wheel on your child's vehicle going forward. You're only asking for what your child is entitled to. Exactly. So um, can school, can the agencies use the argument about something's not evidence-based, placebo-controlled, peer-reviewed in a prestigious journal or something if it's working for a child or would work for a child? The district is not obligated to
6: fund services that are not, or therapy that's not research-based. So that's the extent of where they can use that argument. For example, certain types of auditory processing, um, therapy might not be research-based. However, and again, it's really, it it depends on the state and it depends on the the case law that interprets the law, because the, the IDEA, which is the federal law, is very, very vague. Um, and so, in order to inter- interpret some of those laws, you need to look to case law, which is something that we keep up on a daily basis. And that does vary from state to state. But um, you know, even though there, some of the auditory processing research, which is it's fairly new, some of these programs and therapy um, is very new, and it's not it hasn't been research based yet. Uh, that doesn't mean that the judge will not order implementation of it if it's being made, recommended by a person, an audiologist who has, um, you know, has the credentials to back up the research.
2: Wonderful. Okay, so, Heyman, let's get to those independent educational evaluations. You re- replied earlier that, uh, kids have different challenges, weaknesses, strengths. Uh, they're unique. They respond differently to different interventions. So let's talk more about the independent educational evaluations, why they're so important if they include medical needs, and how you help families with this.
3: Sure, Terry. That's actually a huge piece of this entire process. And, again, I think it's important for your listeners and all the parents to understand how this process works and what they can do in order to ensure that there, these independent educational evaluations are meaningful um, for their children. And the reason I say that is because legally, whenever a school district or LRE does an assessment in any area, which once your child turns three, and we discussed this previously, and enters the district, then the district is responsible for assessing your child. Now. Based on the triennial, the district will assess your child every three years um, in order to have a triennial IEP meeting and discuss your child's needs based on the results of these assessments. Now, as a parent, when a district, whenever a school district does an assessment, and in these situations, the district is going to do a psychoeducational assessment which covers all the academic basis, the cognitive needs, um, and also has pieces of occupation, fine motor, gross motor. Speech and language communication, and a hint of behavior assessment in it as well. A speech and language assessment, which is clearly assessing the child's communication levels, expressive, receptive, pragmatics. The occupational therapy assessment, which would be addressing their fine motor needs, their gross motor needs, sensory needs, um, visual needs. And there is the FBA functional behavior assessment, or an FAA, that addresses their behavior so depending on if they're self injurious or not there's a selection between those two documents that should be a document that identifies the target behaviors that a child has during the school day and address those by intervention methods so whenever that's done by a school district a parent has the right to disagree with these assessments that the district has conducted now legally the way the california education code is written and set up This is really a good resource for parents to use, regardless if they have concerns or not about their child's education or the results of these assessments. And the reason being is that I think, as a representative and an advocate for parents, and doing this um, for an extended period of time, that as a parent, as a parent myself, you always want a second opinion, a third opinion about your child's needs, where they're functioning at, whether it's medical, educational, or a home-based process you're always going to want to and that's just doing your due diligence as a parent to look for a second and third opinion so whenever the district does assessments a parent can disagree with the assessments and request that the school district fund what, what are independent educational assessments IEEs. and at that point the district has only two choices they either fund the independent educational evaluations or they file a due process complaint to defend the appropriateness of their assessments And that comes in the terms of the district deciding our assessments are appropriate, we're going to go ahead and file a complaint to defend the appropriateness of our assessments, or the district will respond to a parent and say, granted, we'll go ahead and fund your independent assessments, we have a timeline to do so, we will do so, you will get an assessment plan as a parent, you sign it, you get an independent assessment. However, the biggest mistake and the issue that that parents fall into is that whenever a parent asks for an independent assessment, then the district is going to provide you with a list. You're going to get a list as a parent. You're going to open your mail one day. You're going to see this list. It's going to look very, very beneficial and fruitful to your child. It's going to have doctors on there, PhDs um, in each area, and they're going to be in your local area, and they're going to be directed as being private assessors. So you're going to look at that list and say, great, now I have some objective to come in and observe my child, take an understanding of what my concerns are, and present those to the IEP team so that we can have a meaningful discussion about my child's needs. However, a lot of times parents are very dissatisfied with the results of the assessors that are on these lists, unfortunately, and those there's several reasons for those whether that list is something that the district continues to recycle and give to every single parent in the district that's asking for an independent assessment, clearly it becomes a conflict of interest with the parent and the trust factor because these assessors are now being funneled 10, 15 IEEs a month by different parents. So, therefore, it becomes an issue when a parent thinks, well, you know, the district is funding these, the district is paying them, they're sending them 10 or 15 IEEs a month. So can I really, really be honestly think that this person is going to come in and be objective and identify my child's needs without worrying that they won't get the next contract from the district? And that's a huge concern for parents. So again, the most important thing to understand is that you do have the right to disagree. And that's completely in the ed code and this proffered there. The second is that, You also have a right to search and seek your own independent assessors um, that you feel comfortable with, you feel are objective, and you feel are going to bring information to the IEP team table for you guys to discuss. That doesn't mean that this independent assessor is not going to be independent. That just means that you can also make suggestions to the respective school district of individuals that you feel comfortable with assessing your child. Now, when that is done, the district has a choice to select the, the assessors that you have chosen and contract with those people directly and pay for their assessments or not. Now, in most instances, most school districts that we've had experience with are pretty open to funding independent assessments and funding them with with assessors that are parents' choice. But the most important part of it is in order to debunk any sort of argument from a school district, you have to make sure that your independent assessors are qualified, they're credentialed, they're trained, they're experienced in order in these assessment areas in order to complete these assessments for your child. The first thing the school district is going to ask you is what are the experience and credentials and qualifications of this individual that you're presenting to us so that we can understand that if we're going to select this person, they meet the criteria and qualifications to be an independent assessor.
2: Wow. Hey, man, this is really important information, and I'm so glad that you shared it with listeners. I'm running out and getting some curriculum vitaes right now. Um, before we go to break, can you please give us uh, the contact information for you and Michelle?
3: Yes. Our offices are located in Long Beach, California, and we're, our office number is 562-496-3292. Once again, 562 496 3292.
2: Okay, when we come back from break we're going to talk about transitions and developing plans for these from elementary to middle to high school. here with Michelle Ortega and Heyman Hakimi at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsors Oxy Health and Superberries We'll be right back.
4: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
5: Do you know the four major principles to healthy living? If we incorporate these principles in our everyday decisions, we could all live better and healthier lives. Tune in to The Joys of Healthy Living with your host, Dr. Ed Dodge. By tuning in each week, you can learn about the four principles for healthy living and how to incorporate them into your life. Dr. Dodge and his guest experts will share tips and discoveries from every aspect of health. The Joys of Healthy Living is broadcast live every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness step up to the microphone view the finalists right now on voiceamericakids.tv America's next great star is waiting to be discovered step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star the program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at voiceamericakids.tv you can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career tune in to voiceamericakids.tv
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Terry.
2: We're back with Michelle Ortega and Heyman Akimi of the Law Offices of Michelle Ortega in Long Beach, California. Michelle, what's that website? Is www.TheLegalDuo.com.
6: duo. com.
2: Okay, so if everybody just remembers Batman, the dynamic duo, this is Legal Duo. www.LegalDuo.com?
6: legalduo. com. The
2: word TheLegalDuo.com. com. dot com. I guess I should take my own advice. I might need an advocate for that. So. <laughs> Michelle, let's talk a bit about transitions and how to develop plans for these from elementary to middle to high school.
6: Well, again, that's really going to vary on the different programs. Some districts only go through elementary school and then you go into a completely different district once you get into junior high and high school. Um, other districts are K through 12, so they, they, you're in the same district now. If you're in the same district, usually the transition should be pretty smooth. Again, every school will have different programs, but usually the, if it's within the same district, um, they will have a, a program that the child can roll into. It's from elementary to junior high and high school. Um, you, we, The most important thing to remember about transitioning is that you still have what's called your stay-put right. So you can they cannot change any frequency, duration, or type of your services if you're getting speech or behavior interventions, if you have an aid at the time. All of that has to follow them into the new program. So wow. um, unless you consent in writing, they cannot change the frequency and duration of your services. Wow. That's important. Now if you're going into a different district, uh if you're going into like a union high school district from an elementary district and it's a completely different district, That district, and this is the same as if you were to move from one district to another, um, then the the receiving district must mirror the IEP offer from the boarding district.
2: Okay. Is this a California thing? I'm sorry to interrupt, but is this a California thing or are the things that you and Heyman are talking about um, to be found in many states?
6: This is in the IDEA, so it's a federal implementations. Now, again, um, legally, every state must abide by the IDEA if they are receiving funding from the federal government for special education. So um, now each state might have laws that are very or might be more protective than the IDEA, but the federal law rules. So that's important to know. So any time that um, a child is transitioning into receiving district must mirror the, the forwarding district's IEP offer for at least thirty days. At which time, during that thirty days, the new district has the right to assess the student, and also has the right to have an IEP meeting to discuss how the student and that's actually mandated to have an IEP meeting within thirty days. At that point, you um, the, the team can get together, talk about how the student has transitioned, and if the student is doing well. Um, A lot of times things you want to look for in transitions is maybe uh, allowing the child to come to the school before the school year actually starts, like the week before when the teachers are there, to kind of get a tour of the campus, to find out who their teacher is going to be, meet the teacher, maybe perhaps even meet the age, look at the classroom, get familiarized with the classroom, because transitions are very difficult for children with special needs. And that helps them to kind of familiarize themselves before the actual first day of school. And then at the 30-day IEP meeting, the district after doing its own, the new district after doing its own assessment, and after having the child <coughs> excuse me, in the program for 30 days can make recommendations for changes, however, you still have that right to your stay put.
2: Okay, very good. This is good to know and good to know that uh, the kids have these rights under IDEA. Well, Michelle and Heyman, uh, very briefly, are there any other areas that you'd like to share with listeners or have we covered it?
3: Well, I'll tell you, I think that Not necessarily a topic, but I just think a general statement is important for the listeners to understand, and that's one of two things. Number one is please don't wait, and that's the biggest thing that I tell people that come in here that are frustrated and are in on the verge of tears three, four years later. They say this has been occurring for three and four years. I haven't gotten services for three and four years. Right. My placement is not appropriate for three and four years. So as a parent, please, please don't wait seek out help. There's tons of resources. There's independent assessors that are qualified that can assist you. And the most important is those three and four years, your child's never going to get back. Those are three and four years, educationally, that your child has lost. So I'd like to tell all of your listeners um, and whoever is interested that whoever would like to call us, um, we would provide you guys with a free one-hour IEP consultation. Um, If you're a listener, bring in your IEP call us, fax it, we can talk about it, give you advice, kind of counsel you on if you have an upcoming IEP. I know the school year is starting. If you have an upcoming IEP or you just have a simple question that you need to ask us to make yourself feel more comfortable, please, please use us as a resource. We're always here and we just want to make sure that parents are given and children are given the best opportunity to succeed.
2: Well, that is really sweet of you. And, Michelle and Heyman, I want to thank you for sharing this essential information with listeners so that their kids can chart a good course in their school years.
6: Yeah, good luck to everybody.
2: And I have a special announcement to listeners who are in or within traveling distance of the Chicagoland area, please make every effort to go to the fundraising event for Dr. Anju Usman, who is a skilled and sweet doctor to so many children with autism. If you met her in person, you would know that Dr. Usman is in the top tier of sweet people in this world, but politics have been threatening her future healing efforts and jeopardizing the ability of children to be greatly helped by her. On September 8th in Chicagoland, at the Blues Bar in Mount Prospect, Illinois, many from the autism community will be honoring Dr. Anju Usman to recognize the outstanding medical care she has provided to thousands of children with complex medical issues, and support her ability to continue to provide appropriate medical care for children, including those with autism. And this will also support children with autism by them still being able to receive this excellent medical care. So, please join others in Chicago on September 8th to celebrate Dr. Usman's work and dedication to our kids. The future of our kids' medical care depends on all of us participating. If you're local, Please attend or make a financial gift. And for long-distance family and friends, please consider a donation at www.standbydrusman.usman.com. And again, the fundraiser is on September 8th at 7 p.m. at the Blues Bar 2 West Bus Avenue in Mount Prospect, Illinois. We want to thank this program's sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries. Please don't forget to check out the MAPS Medical Academy of Pediatric Special Needs Conference website at www.medmaps.org. The MAPS Conference will be held in Orlando from September 27th through 29th. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.